Well, good morning. So we are in the sixth week of a message series on the Ten Commandments. We've called this series your Ten Greatest Challenges. And again, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. These commandments really establish the framework for our relationship with God and with other people. Last week we read from Matthew chapter 22 where an expert in the law came up to Jesus to test him with a question. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? To which Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He said, this is the first and greatest commandment. He said, the second is like it. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he kind of summarized. He said, all the law and the prophets, they hang on these two commandments. And so over the first four weeks of this series, we've examined the first four commandments. And they all kind of fall under that category of loving God. You know, Jesus said, falls under love God and love people. So those first four commandments really fall under that category of loving God. And they, they deal with our vertical relationship with God. So those commandments were, you shall have another, no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make or bow down to any graven images. Third commandment was, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And then the fourth commandment was, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, I realize that that fourth commandment may seem kind of like a stretch to say that that commandment deals with our vertical relationship with God. Like, how does, how does remembering the Sabbath day relate to our relationship with God? Well, if you remember, we said that the challenge with that commandment was to rest in God's work. And that commandment pointed us back to God's creative work. It said, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, we live on the, uh, a different side of the cross than, than the people who had received the Ten Commandments. The New Testament shows us that, that we live in a day where we understand that the things that were in the Old Testament were pointing forward to something, or really to someone. Right? The whole law and all those ceremonies, all those prophecies, all the things that they had to do, they were pointing forward to Jesus. Colossians 2 says that these things were just a shadow of things that were to come. So what does this mean for us? Like, what is, what is this Sabbath in the Old Testament, what is it pointing to? What is it a shadow of? Well, let's think about it this way. What day was Adam born in the creation account? Or really, he wasn't technically born. He was made from the dust of the earth. But what day was that? It was day six. So imagine on day six, Adam is now alive and, and maybe he's thinking, my goodness, there's, there's just so much to see, so much to do. I got to get to work. And God is like, yeah, it's been a great week. Welcome to earth. <laughs> it's actually time for bed. And so Adam goes to bed on his first day, day six, and he wakes up on the seventh day and it's his first full day. This is the seventh day. And he's, he wakes up and he's like, all right, well, we got to get to work, don't we? A lot to do. And God says, well, actually, it's the seventh day and today is a day off. What do you mean it's a day off? It's my first day, Adam's thinking. Look, look at this garden. I'm, I'm supposed to tend to it. I'm supposed to work it, right? And God's like, no, 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 no. I, I finished all the work before you got here. Now you rest. And so Adam's first full day on planet Earth was a day of rest. And this is a foreshadowing of what was to come in Jesus. You see, religion tells us we have to do, 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 do. Like, what do I have to do to earn God's love? What do I have to do to earn God's favor? But Jesus says, no, you're just, you're just showing up in this relationship. I've done it all. I've done all the work. I've taken care of it all. Your job is to rest in what I've already done. You think, well, how can I rest? 
Like, I, I didn't do anything. And that's the point. Jesus says, I, I took care of it all. I, I paid the bill for your sins. It is finished. I took care of the work, all six days of the work for you on that six hours on the cross. Now you rest in your relationship with me that I earned for you. So Jesus is our Sabbath day rest. So we honor God's work through Jesus when we remember the Sabbath. That is that's how it relates to our vertical relationship with God. But last week then we moved into the, the next set of commandments that would fall under this category that Jesus described as loving your neighbor or loving people. And when God issued this, this first commandment that dealt with our relationship with other people, he started with a commandment that dealt with the very first people that we would encounter in our lives, our parents. And so last week we covered this commandment, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Well, today we move to the sixth commandment. And I've been having us read these commandments together out loud throughout this series as we go. And so we're going to read this commandment together, but it's really, really long. It's uh, really long. It's four words long. So hopefully we can handle this. Let's read this next commandment together. You ready? You shall not murder. Very good. You guys got it. So complicated, right? So you shall not murder. Now, I don't know if any of you personally know someone who has been murdered or know anyone who has murdered anyone else. Uh, my first experience with murder, I mean, not firsthand, I, I've never been murdered and I haven't been convicted of murder. At least I haven't been caught. Um, but my first experience um, knowing someone who was murdered was actually when I was in eighth grade a guy that was a couple years older, older than me in school, uh, his body was found. It was, it was bloodied and shot up, and there was several thousand dollars around his body. Apparently, it was a drug deal that gone, had gone bad. And the two guys that were uh, convicted of murdering him, uh, they actually went to my high school. But when I was a senior in high school, uh, a guy from my school, a guy that I knew, I, I, I grew up with him, like he was a friend of mine in elementary school before he got involved in a gang. But he was at a party and things got very violent and people scattered and this old friend of mine ended up actually shooting and killing someone uh, as they were trying to flee the scene. Uh, I didn't know the guy that he killed, but I actually knew the guy that he was aiming for <laughs> and didn't kill. Uh, he was in some of my classes. But these, I mean, they, they were people I knew, but they weren't real close to home. But it did kind of shake me as a teenager, you know. But I realized as we read this commandment, uh, you know, we read it and go, okay, well, thou shalt not murder, right? I, I think I can handle this commandment, right? Like, I, I don't fear breaking this one. Thank goodness, finally one of these that, that I don't fear breaking. But these four words of this commandment have so many practical dimensions to our lives. And it touches actually on some very sensitive and controversial issues. And it definitely represents one of our greatest challenges. And we're going to say that it's a challenge with peace. And the challenge that we're issuing is to value every life. To value every life. So today in this message, I want to address two questions as we proceed. The first question is, why did God give this commandment? And the second is, what does this commandment mean then? So first question, why did God give us this commandment? And the answer is, is pretty simple. It's because every human life is uniquely created in God's image. Every human life is uniquely created in God's image. The Bible makes this very clear. Going back to Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. 
in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this is the basis for what gives humanity its unique and immeasurable value. We are made in the image of God. So it's interesting if you read through Genesis 1, you read about all the things that God created, but when you get to the creation of humans, this creation account is really set apart from the other ways that, that things were created. For example, in verse 26, in the beginning, of, the beginning of the creation of man, it's marked by the usual, then God said. All right? and, and then what usually follows is, is a command that's kind of impersonal and you know, in the third person. It'd be, and God said, let there be. So let there be light. Let there be plants. Let there be animals, that type of thing. But when it comes to humans, it, it's more personal. It's, it's said in the first person. And instead of let there be, it is let us make. God says, let us make. Another way that it's set apart with how man was created is that uh, when it comes to each of the creature, creatures that God created, Scripture says that they were created according to its kind. According to its kind. But when you get to the creation of man, it's specified that the man and woman were created in God's image. Not merely according to its kind. Man's image is not simply of himself, but he also shares a likeness to his creator. Another way that the creation of humans is different than the other creation accounts, or uh, other creatures, is that it's specifically noted that humans were made male and female. But the writer of Genesis didn't consider gender to be an important feature to stress in the creation accounts of the other created beings, right? But for humanity, it's important to note that they were created male and female. And then another difference is only humanity was given dominion over God's creation. It's stated that man is to be over all other living creatures. So why is it that people then have been singled out in the way that they were created? Well, it was obviously done intentionally. It's to portray humans as a special creature, marked off from the rest of God's work. Mankind is so special that, that we were the only ones created in the likeness, in the image of God. So that's, that's pretty amazing for us that we are created in the image of God, but it also points glory back to God. I mean, think about it. There are some 7 billion walking, breathing statues of God on display right now in this planet. God created us in his image so that we would display, so that we would reflect, so that we would communicate who God is, how great he is, what he is like. But if you don't understand this about God and about us, then you're going to have a distorted view of the value of human life. All of human life bears his image. All of human life is highly loved and highly valued. And the taking of human life then is like trashing God's image. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful in our society to understand this because increasingly in our society, we have closed the gap between human life and animal life. But in reality, that gap is wide and it is uncrossable. Though the world is full of all types of creatures, only humanity bears the image of God. So all life is made by God, but not all life is made like God. Let me say that again. All life 
is made by God, but not all life is made like God. Humans are different. That's why in Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, God said, everything that moves, uh, lives and moves about will be food for you. So all the plants and animals, they're food. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything, meaning the animals. So by God's word, we are allowed to eat plants, and we're also allowed to eat animals. It's not murder to eat beef. Can I get an amen? Whew, right? All right. But later in the chapter, God, again, differentiates humans. He said, and from, from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. So you may take the, the life of an animal, but whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Again, he sets us apart because he's saying we are created in his image. So what we learn from Genesis is this. That plant and animal life should be respected, but not put on equal ground with human life. We, we are the caretakers for all the other life forms. We are the caretakers. We are stewards of God's earth and his creation. We also learn that human life is, is far different. Because again, we are the only ones who bear the image of God. And, and I know it may then seem far-fetched, but... But when we close this gap between humans and animals, the argument becomes then, well, my dog is old and feeble, and so I'll take him to the vet, get him a little injection, and have him put down. And well, my grandpa is getting old and feeble and in a lot of pain. Why shouldn't I do the same for him? And our culture is beginning to slide more and more into this acceptable moral decadence. What's happened is that many have, have just thrown out God and therefore, his values are thrown out as well, including the value of human life. Now, as a side note to this, for this commandment, uh, this commandment that says, you shall not murder, this is not a definitive argument against war and capital punishment. In other words, you, you cannot use this specific commandment to be a pacifist, or meaning to be against war, or to be against capital punishment. That, that doesn't mean you can't have objections to war, that doesn't mean you can't personally be, uh, you know, have objections to the practice of capital punishment, but they are not con condemned by this commandment. In fact, God led his people to many battles against their enemies and even instructed them to kill their enemies. And, and God endorsed capital punishment for certain crimes. So you can make some arguments against war and against capital punishment, but you cannot make those arguments using the sixth commandment as your proof text. There have been times throughout history, even Old Testament history, when the taking of one man's life meant the sparing of many other lives. People like Eglon or Sisera or Goliath, they, they were all killed and it spared the lives of God's people. And these actions were even endorsed by God. In the same way, the Apostle Paul says that the government wields the sword for a purpose. Romans 13.4 says, for the, for the one in authority and talking about governmental authorities, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now in a larger context, this is why governments have armies. It's not, not to kill people. It is to protect people. So if you want a little bit more information about this, if you want to study how Christians have reconciled over the years this commandment, thou shalt not murder, with how we can say, but it's okay to take a life in, in war, uh, you can look up what's called the just war theory, 
just war theory or just war doctrine. And this was put together by an ancient philosopher and theologian named Augustine. He would write about this just war theory. I know Dave Stauffer, our senior pastor, he's had a lot of conversations with soldiers because he's an army chaplain about this issue. You know, many, many soldiers who are getting ready to deploy, they've had to grapple with the thought of possibly put, be putting, being put in a situation where they're going to be instructed to kill an enemy or in the heat of battle to kill an enemy to protect their own life or to protect someone else's life in a time of war. This is not murder. It's not the same thing. That being said, we, we have this commandment because God places a high value on human life. And so the second question then is, so what does this commandment actually mean then? Or what is it, what is it really trying to prevent? And so to answer this, I want to give you four examples of what this is trying to prevent. And the first is actually murder, the, taking the life of your neighbor. So this commandment is rightly translated in the English, you shall not murder. The proper word here is murder. It's not the word kill. There, there is a difference. Not that I'm promoting killing either, but murder comes with anger and hatred. It is a deliberate taking of the life of your neighbor. Again, most of us, when we read this commandment, though, we're going, okay, well, I'm good with this one, right? And I'm sure that's what people thought when Jesus was preaching his longest recorded sermon, called the Sermon on the Mount, until he got to this point in that sermon when he said this. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And the people were like, yes, we have heard that one. Are you bringing this up because we've done such a good job of, of keeping this? You want to reward us? Like, are you going to give us our merit badge for not murdering anyone? Is this what's happening here today? But then Jesus said this, but I tell you, I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, rakah, which is an Aramaic term of contempt, uh, we might translate it as fool or imbecile. So anyone who says to a brother or sister, rakah, is answerable to the court. Now, obviously, he's not meaning a human court here, right? Because you're, you're not going to go to prison because you have hatred in your heart towards someone else. But he's saying there's a higher court that we're accountable to. He goes on and he says, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So, so Jesus, when he, he said this, he was really going straight to the heart of the commandment, you shall not murder. And, and it's not just the physical act of homicide, but, but at the root of this is a heart condition. The hate and the contempt you have in your heart, he's saying it's just as bad as murder. In fact, 1 John 3.15 says this, anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. And you know that no one, no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And so Jesus is saying hating someone, and First John is saying hating someone, is equated with murder because it is the root of murder. You know, we, we say that all sin is equal. All sin is sin. Now, there may be differences in, in, in earthly consequences, right? Again, you hate somebody, you're not going to prison for it. You murder someone, you're getting life in prison, right? Or maybe your life taken from you. So there's differences in, in punishment, earthly, but in God's eyes, all sin is on the same level in that it, it separates us from God. It's deserving of wrath and punishment. So again, Jesus equates murder with, with, with hating someone. When you insult a person, when you say to them, rakar, you call them fool, you call them names, you are also degrading the image of God. 
James, the brother of Jesus, would put it this way in James 3, 9 and 10. He said, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. That, that term again, in the image of God, in God's likeness, shows up again for why we value human life, why we don't, we don't degrade others, why we don't use our words in hateful ways towards one another. Verse 10, he says, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So again, this commandment not to murder brings with it an enormous challenge then to value every life, even the life of someone who would typically bring you anger and hatred in your heart toward them. But what else does this commandment cover? What else is it trying to prevent? Secondly, it's trying to prevent abortion, which is the taking taking the life of your unborn neighbor. So why is it that abortion is wrong? Again, because even the unborn child is made in the image of God. The Bible shows us that God has an active relationship with the unborn child. Did you know that? In Psalm 139, David begins to ask this question. He says to, to God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? In other words, is there any place in this cosmos where God is not present? So listen to his conclusion. He says, if I go up to the heavens, God, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there too. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So he's saying, God is always with me. And and then it seems as as though David begins to entertain this thought that maybe, maybe it was different before he was born though. Like, could it be that we were hidden from God in the darkness of the womb? when we were what most of the scientific world would call just a fetus. And here's what he concludes in verse 11. If I say, well, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. That was not hidden from you. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, you were, you were there. He says, your eyes, they saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I know we've read that passage quite a few times here at church, but every time, doesn't that passage just grab at your heart? The intimacy of God forming us, weaving us together, knitting us together in our mother's womb. Yet for a culture that prides itself on trusting in science, we have woefully ignored not only the science, but also the theology behind it. A pre-born life is not a potential life. It is life. It is life made in the image of God. I know that there are some of you, many of you maybe, who have experienced the pain and the grief and the tragedy of a miscarriage. And though this passage is never going to take away that pain, I pray that you would read it again and, and, and hopefully it will bring you some level of hope some level of comfort knowing that this little life that was lost to you was known by God, formed 
by God, loved by God, and is now safe in the arms of God. And it's just another reason why heaven is going to be such an incredible place. There will be such a glorious, glorious reunion. The taking of of the life of your neighbor is, is murder. Taking the life of your unborn neighbor is also murder. And so is what we call euthanasia, which is the take, taking the life of an elderly or really sick person. So I, I, I don't know how common this is in our world, in our, I mean, our circle, in our country, right? It's, it's definitely been a debated issue over the years. But this, what we'll call medical practice, is legal in parts of the world. Euthanasia involves this decision that someone else's life is no longer worth living, and so it is ended. I know some of you have been at that bedside of a family member who was sick and they were dying. You need to understand this, that there is a huge difference between ending life and ending treatment. There's a difference between ending life and ending treatment. Let me be very clear on that. If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it is an agonizing situation that maybe you've had to wrestle with to to decide whether to end treatment or to keep a loved one alive only because they're alive because a machine is keeping them alive. And it's not easy. It's not easy to watch the body of someone you love who is being sustained only by medical treatment given to them. But we have to understand that, that, that maybe sometimes ending treatment may be this way to hand that life that we love over to God, a life that already belongs to him anyway. Again, there's a huge difference in sustaining a life that is being taken by God and taking a life that is being sustained by God. It's a line that many of you have had to agonize over and a line that many more will have to agonize over. But if we understand the difference beforehand, it can make it a little bit easier to make those decisions when the time comes. Lastly, the sixth commandment is trying to prevent suicide, taking your own life. My goodness, we are just hitting on a bunch of difficult topics today, aren't we? <laughs> um, I remember when I was in high school, there, there was a girl, this was probably my first experience with an attempted uh, suicide, but a girl in my high school, during the middle of the day, she was in her chemistry class, in the chemistry lab, and she grabbed some chemicals and began to drink them to try and end her life. Luckily, she was stopped soon enough that she only experienced burns around her lips and around her mouth, and uh, they were in, able to ingest her, or in, in, uh, make her to induce, thank you, <laughs> vomiting uh, and, and prevent her from dying. This was probably my first experience with someone who had wanted to commit suicide. And as a ninth or 10th grader, that was a lot for me to process. And I, and I just, at that time, couldn't understand how someone could do something like that, how they could be at such a low point in their life that suicide would even be a consideration. Uh, I've lived long enough now to have a little bit more empathy I was talking to a psychiatrist friend of mine a, a few weeks back, and he was saying that this pandemic has just been hammering everyone. I mean, it has been so hard on people. Sarah and I, we were just talking last night about some of the things that we've been through just in the past about year with us and with our family. And, and we were saying, I, I just don't know how people make it without God. I just don't know. Like, this has been a hard year. And without God, I could see how, how people would... I can see clearly how people would just be in despair. My goodness, it's, it's, it's been dif- difficult even with God, right? 
So I, I in no way want to trivialize this or oversimplify this issue because it is much, much more complicated than this. But essentially, suicide says, my life doesn't matter anymore. Some of you, you may be feeling that way right now, that your life doesn't matter right now. Some of you may be entertaining suicidal thoughts. And I wish, I pray that you could hear God's word on this subject today, that you are loved and that you are valued. That your life does matter more than you could ever, ever know. That God gave you your life and he wants you here. That because God gave you your life, you then are a caretaker of that life. And because God has given you that life, he's also given you purpose. And I know you may not feel that in this moment, you may feel like there is no purpose that, that you can't go on. I wish you could just step out of this moment for, for a little bit and see this God who loves you and who is with you in this darkness. And that he has a plan for you. That he loves you so much that he wants to spend eternity with you. you know, some of the hardest funerals I've ever done are for those who have committed suicide. <clears throat> and inevitably, when I meet with the family, they want to know, like, if a person who commits suicide can, can be in heaven. Obviously, it's never God's will for anyone to take their own life. And though I'm concerned about the spiritual condition of that person who, who comes to the point where they believe that taking their life is their best or only option, it is not the unforgivable sin. It is not. Many times there are some underlining mental health factors that are going on. And we may not understand that, but God knows their mind. He knows their situation. He knows their agony. Again, this is not the unforgivable sin. In fact, murder in any form is not an unforgivable sin. I've had women confess to me that they've had abortions and they carry around with them so much guilt and shame and remorse and they, they believe that God could never forgive them, that God could never love them after they've done what they've done. It is not unforgivable. And they are loved with a love that is beyond comprehension. To believe that these things are unforgivable, it devalues the power of the cross. It devalues the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, your life is valued so much. My life is valued so much that God would create us in his image and though we are sinners, though we made a choice to sin, though we are deserving of God's wrath, though we deserve our lives being taken from us by our creator, God loved us. And because God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, will have eternal life. A life spent with our creator for all of eternity. God values your life so much. He wants to be with you for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this commandment today, on its surface, it, it seems so obvious, so easy to keep. But there's so much more involved in it. And so, God, I pray that we would value every human life because you value and love every human life because you have created each and every life 
in your likeness, in your image. So forgive us when we have anger and hatred in our heart towards somebody. Forgive us when we devalue another human life because in a way we are devaluing you because that person was created in your likeness. So God, I pray again that we would value every human life, even our own lives. I know especially during this time there are There are people struggling with their value, with their worth. They're just feeling down, lonely, isolated. They may feel worthless, invaluable, and may even consider that their life is no longer worth living. God, I pray that they would understand how much they are loved. That they would experience your grace and your overwhelming presence in their life. That they would, they would even just understand a sliver of how much you love them. God, I thank you that you value life. <laughs> so again, I pray that we would, because we love you, that we would love other people. We are commanded to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So I pray that we would also love ourselves because we have been created in your likeness, because we have intrinsic value because of what you've done for us. We have value because you felt so highly about us that you decided to leave the glories of heaven, step onto this earth and walk as we walk, live as we've lived, experience what we experience and then give your life for us. Because you love us so much, you gave your life for us. Because you love us so much, you wanted to give us the hope of being reunited with you for all of eternity. So God, I pray that we would love you, we would love ourselves, we would love others, that we would communicate your love to others, to a desperate world who more and more doesn't see value in themselves or in others. God, may we be like you, not just in your image, but in our minds, in our hearts, and in our actions as well. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And so this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the love of God. Respond to his work that he has done through Jesus for you. To respond to his invitation to spend eternity with him. So you've never, if you've never placed your trust, your hope, and your faith in Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to do that today. I'm going to be up here to your right as we sing this song. and would love to talk to you through what that means. Or maybe you just need some prayer today for yourself or someone else. Uh, I would love the opportunity to pray as well. I'll have my mask on. Uh, And so if you need to talk during that song or after, please come see me. Will you stand and sing with us?